Well, we knew that cable modems were coming and DSL and and that it was the speed thing always gets worked out in computing, right? Whenever there's a big platform shift, it's always slow and buggy and kind of hard in the beginning. But if it's about speed, then that problem always gets solved. Welcome back to another episode of the Debutify podcast. Today, I spoke with Dennis Kelly, the CEO of Postalytics. We discussed his early days working on his parents' farm, how he's carried that work ethic till now, lessons from corporate life, the many startups he's created, and the twists and turns of Postalytics, his current company, the direct mail automation tool. He was a lovely man to speak to, and I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I just want to say thanks for coming. It's good to have you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to uh, participate. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Cool. Thanks. Me too. So, Dennis, please walk me through your early life. You were just saying before we started that you grew up in a farm in upstate New York. I also know from listening to you on other podcasts that you were quite entrepreneurial back then, knocking on people's houses and just, you know, doing doing the rounds. But I wanted to ask you, what are your formative experiences back then or you know in in an early timeline that have led you to who you are today well, thank you connor and yeah i think that there were many formative experiences all of us have uh, foundations that we build things upon and i believe that the pieces of the of my foundation were 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 laid at a, at a young age as you mentioned i grew up on a farm there was a lot of work a lot of manual work that just needed to be done and and my parents my sister and i there were only four of us we had a significant amount of ongoing work to do every single day to both kind of fix up a broken down old farm uh, that really needed a lot of work and then to maintain uh, you know a working farm with a lot of animals and property and things along those lines. And so I was charged at a young age with doing a lot of things. And, you know, my my father taught me how to drive a tractor and take care of animals and mend fences and cut wood and, you know, all, all sorts of things that were just necessary in order for the uh, operation of the farm uh, and and really the improvement of the property to uh, to happen. And so later in life, as you know, whenever I start to have doubts or to feel sorry for myself about you know working really long hours or being very tired, I I think back to those years and say, hey, you know, I'm in the software business. I'm, I've got it pretty good, you know. <laughs> My hands are tired from typing and, you know, my eyes are a little bit tired, but that's about it. You know, I think that that, that sort of work ethic that you pick up in uh, that type of home life is something that has been pervasive throughout uh, my career and, and, you know, my approach to raising a family and everything else. So that's that work ethic was, is there. And then I think, secondly, uh, my parents also encouraged me to just go out and try to make money. And and don't be afraid to ask people if they need help, if I can do work for them. I mowed lawns, car washes, just did a lot of small tasks for people that live nearby that I could help them out and make a little bit of money. I always had jobs to do. And, and you know, if I had a little bit of extra time, I'd try to find a way to make a buck. What was, I think... Interesting about that is that later, uh, when I was working for a very, very large corporation, I think it struck me that I didn't really have a lot of control over my career. Maybe more instinctually, I always felt like it's my effort, if it's my 
focus, I'll ultimately be able to control my own destiny. I think it it kind of led me to want to get out of a large corporate environment and, and into startups uh, because uh, of that instinctual drive to want to you know be in control of my own destiny and not just a, a cog in a very very large machine. That was probably the other the other really formative experience that kind of drove my career. Yeah, that that's like a very logical through line because you would have just kind of molded yourself into that kind of person by doing all of those, you know, independent style jobs. That's not like most, I don't know what the orthodox route is, is like you work for somebody usually. My first job, I was a cleaner boy at a butcher. That was just like a classic hierarchy where you're like, they pay me for doing the thing. But then I guess if you started out in life being like, I'm the guy going and getting the work. And then you eventually yeah, work in the corporate space and you're like, this is so weird. Yeah, and I think the experience I had in the corporate world was was wonderful from a lot of perspectives. I met great people and I got great training. And, you know, I guess when I was a young guy knocking on doors trying to, you know, drum up work, it was a form of sales. That first corporate job that I had, uh, they they really invested in strong formal training uh and and in particular in sales. That was a great foundation piece as well. An entrepreneurial career, you, you're always selling. You're always stating your case to somebody, getting that formalized training and, and, and drilling and practice on presentation skills and organizing your thoughts and leading customers through a sales process was also very, very important. Let's tidy up the timeline. So what's this uh, big corporate company and where whereabouts is that in your life? I graduated from college in 1987 and that it was really, it was my first professional job out of college, uh, a company called Prudential Insurance, who most people have heard of. It was in a department or a, a division of Prudential that was focused on corporate benefits. You know, we were selling corporate benefit plans into businesses. You know, there was a lot to learn about insurance, of course, and, you know, how, and then how healthcare benefits work. Well, it was an interesting time in that industry because HMOs were first we're really just starting to become a prominent way to ensure corporate employees. And so there was a lot of effort to re-educate the existing market around an innovation that that, that Prudential and other insurance companies were were pushing as a way to to try to get a control over healthcare costs. There was a, a lot to learn about underwriting risk and, of course, marketing and sales. And so uh, that I was in an office in the New York metro area after six months of training every day, training on all these different topics and primarily on sales, then placed out into a field office in Manhattan. You know, I worked with a very large group of senior salespeople and very strong uh, manager uh, who ran that office, the vice president who had been with the company for 35 years. And I think it was the largest office, sales office in the in the country for Prudential. And uh, so, you know, there's a lot of great mentoring guidance that was uh, delivered. And, and, and I was able to watch a very mature organization and how it works. But at the end of the day, I had to go and knock on doors and try to find business. And, and so uh, there was a lot of cold calling both uh, directly into businesses, as well as uh, what I figured out also is that there was a way to actually sell through independent insurance brokers. And and so it's kind of a concept of a channel sales, right? Where you've got other people doing the selling for you and you're getting a piece of the commission. So 
uh, that was also, I think, a, a great experience. I did that for a, a, a couple of years uh, in New York before I, I moved on into uh, my first startup. Okay, and and what was that? A college friend of mine and his brother were starting up what was at the time computer company. It was focused on a particular vertical industry, uh, so it was in healthcare. And uh, so, what had happened was my friend from college was a software engineer, uh, computer science major, and his brother was a, a nursing home administrator. And the two of them got together and were looking at the way they were doing all of their business in this nursing home and decided that they needed to computerize it because essentially everything was being done by hand. Uh, everything was done on paper, including the accounting, because at this time in the... It's like early 90s. Yeah, exactly. Early 90s, many, many businesses had still not computerized their basic accounting practices. In the nursing home industry, and in, in, or I should say long-term care, um, because it encompasses assisted living and other segments. The the billing is very specialized. The accounting is very specialized because the they all have to report to the government everything that they're doing, both at the state level and the federal level, for a lot of regulatory reasons. And and so there's there was need for very specific uh, types of accounting. I knew I wanted to get into a startup. I was hearing all about how the, you know, people in tech were doing great and, you know, computers are the future. And I didn't know anything about computers, uh, but I knew that that was directionally probably a, a good move. So I quit my job and moved to Boston and jumped into this little startup uh, with my friend, his brother and his brother's wife. We had literally no idea what we were doing. It was a very, very tough couple of years. You know, they had bought a piece of hardware from a company, a computer company called Quantel. And and back in those days, there were all these computer companies that were building their own equipment as well as their own operating systems and development environments. And so, so you'd buy a computer for $100,000 as a small business, which is kind of crazy. And then you'd, you'd get some basic software, but then people would have to write the software to actually do things. In-house as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so they had bought this computer from a company called Quantel. And, and my friend started programming the, the, the basic accounting principles in, the, in this particular system. So in order for us to sell it, we had to sell this piece of equipment too. We couldn't just, you know, drop oh. it in PCs because PCs didn't exist. You know, there was no internet. There, there, there wasn't even networking. These were these computers that the size of a desk that had these green, ter- green, black and green terminals hanging off. So the uh, workflow is just before you move on. You put it in that only, like that only, only in that model. Every single time it comes in, you program it, you put it out. Yeah. So, so you, you could write the software once, and then. So it would happen we if we'd sell a customer, which was not that often. Uh, yeah, hundred grand. <laughs> we would schedule schedule this hardware install, you know, which would take six weeks to get set up and and configured, and then we would come in and spend like two days loading up our custom software, and and then and then begin training folks on on how to change their accounting process from something that is handwritten to something that is now being done, you know, through some automation. That's pretty cutting edge. That must have felt really cool. You know, it certainly did, but but there was such it was such a kind of mismatch in the uh, I guess you, we today we call it product market fit, right? So so this is a 
this is generally a uh, an industry of you know small to mid-sized businesses with professional staff of 25 to 30 people uh, that are running these nursing homes and while the the goal of automate automation was certainly something that made sense it was just a, a huge amount of friction yeah. huge hardware purchase huge amount of time massive investment to to change the, these processes so it was slow and you know it was hard and we weren't making any money and and we were so lucky because what ended up happening right at that time is that PCs started to really become a viable computing option. And so all of a sudden, we were able to start selling Dell PCs, right, to these smaller businesses and and, and network them together through a local area network because Ethernet happened. Yeah. Right? So, so those two things happen, right, almost simultaneously in the computing industry. And then, boom, all of these old line companies like that Quantel for $100,000, they just went away. And this whole new generation of hardware makers that were building, working on operating systems that would work across any type of computer happened. So then all of a sudden, you know, you're not bound to a particular piece of hardware and you can, you could build software once and have it run on virtually all the types of computers that are out there, except for Apple, right? So all of a sudden, we just decided, all right, we're going to pull a plug on what we're doing. And we basically laid off a bunch of people, put our heads down for a year and rebuilt the software in a PC operating system that could work on a network, a local area network. And it dropped our total cost of, of sale to a new customer by a factor of 4X, you know, instead of $150,000, you know, we're talking $25,000, something along the lines. So it was just a drastic change in the fundamental economics of what we're doing. These things happened completely out of our control. And it was just a macro level change that we happened to be in the right place at the right time. When I said we knew literally nothing uh, about what we were doing, that's that's kind of the example right there. That is incredible. I was just listening to that thinking, I don't know why you did that. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, that sounds like the space to be in. I can, I could, I should do that kind of thing. I should do that. And now you're just like buying these big PCs. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you're 25 years old. Sometimes uh, you, you don't make the best decisions, but uh, it all it ended up working out. The company ended up doing well. And, you know, we're, I was kind of off to the races at that point. And what was your next move then? So uh, we sold that business uh, eventually to a larger healthcare IT company. Uh, I, I ran, I, I was VP of sales for them for a couple of years. Starting a family, the VP of sales job required a tremendous amount of travel. Uh, and, you know, I, I knew I wanted to get back out on my own again. And so right along that time in the late 1990s, the internet kind of was becoming a thing. You know, I knew that this was a another huge platform shift and and that it would spawn a whole new generation of opportunity. I had uh, some ideas that I was uh, cultivating and talking to a lot of people about here in the Boston area. And uh, I ended up connected with another guy and uh, we put together a business that was known as anyday.com, one of the very first online calendar systems. Yeah, and it rings a bell. Essentially, if you're familiar with Google Calendar, we 
pretty much built that almost identical in the way that it looks and user interface and the uh, functionality was almost identical, except it was early, right? 1998, 1999. And yeah, I remember those computers. Uh, we were using dial-up modems on the internet, but we knew that cable modems were coming and DSL and and that it was the speed thing always gets worked out in computing, right? Whenever there's a big platform shift, it's always slow and buggy and kind of hard in the beginning. But if it's about speed, then that problem always gets solved. By Moore's Law or by something else? By Moore's Law, uh, by, by bandwidth. Uh, you know, and there's a new type of network that happens. Like when, when the internet first came out, there just wasn't any bandwidth. But everybody could see that that problem would be solved. Uh, when we hopped onto cell phones, there was very little bandwidth, right? You could only text message and, you know, very, very little back and forth. But we knew that would be solved. Today in the in blockchain, I think we're kind of at a similar point where it's just this huge resource hog and it's, you know, it's not efficient form of computing, but that will be solved. The underlying principles of cryptography are like useful enough so that we'll break through and make it efficient. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that that time in the late '90s, early 2000s was crazy. You know, kind of a startup perspective, and and so we went and raised a bunch of venture capital, and you know, I, I ended up meeting one of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life was a venture capitalist named Brad Feld, who's on our board. He was on like 17 boards all at the same time, and it was just just a crazy time of life. Like a lot of venture backed startups, the pressure was to grow and grow rapidly. And, and we did, as we saw the air being let out of the dot-com bubble, we were able to sell the business uh, and have a good return for everybody uh, to a company called Palm. So, so Palm had really built the first commercially successful handheld computing device. You know, they saw the fact that these are all going to be connected just like everybody else. And, and so they said, well, you know, Calendaring is a big part of what was being done in the Palm, but it was just being done locally and with local storage, and they needed to find a way to kind of tie that together with the internet. And so that's it was a strategic acquisition on their part uh, to buy any day. You know, stayed at Palm for a couple of years. Uh, it was another, you know, big, big corporation gone public. Stayed there and, and ran the kind of the, the web operations for them for a couple of years before uh, I ended up moving on again. What, what, wait, sorry. Um, what do you mean by moving out again? Moving out on your own? Like being yes. your own intern? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Spending a lot of time in Silicon Valley, uh, which was great. You know, mm-hmm. I, I love the, the time and the people out there, but uh, my family's back in Boston and uh, they were very young, young children. And it was very difficult, you know, yeah, to yeah. be spending weeks every month out there. So you come back to Boston. Does this line up with um, Boing? I don't know how to say it. I'm going to butcher it. Boing net. No. Why don't we fast forward a little bit? I, so I did a couple of, a couple more startups. Had my first failure in that gap after after the Palm experience. Jumped into Boingnet in 2013. My one of the engineers that I worked with at at any day in Palm. Uh, it was a he was a brilliant young software architect. Turns out he he moved near me and and we kind of reconnected, got together and uh, he had his own business doing consulting and had had built a, some software as as a side gig and it was focused on the direct mail world. 
you know, he, he said, Hey, I want to show you this thing. And it's kind of cool. And I got some customers using it. And, you know, it was interesting because at that point in 2013, there's tremendous investment that had just really gotten going in the marketing tech world. And, you know, there really hadn't been a lot of investment in technology to do corporate or business marketing, but marketing automation was becoming a thing. Companies like Pardot were blowing up and HubSpot was getting going. Companies that had maybe been started in the late or, or say 2008, 2009 were really starting to get traction. And so then they were attracting more investment. And we thought, you know what, there's a lot going on here in marketing tech and it's pretty much all email driven. And, you know, direct mail is a really old marketing channel that is still really big uh, in terms of you know, the the total spend every year on the part of businesses, but nobody seemed to be thinking about ways to do any automation. This initial product that my partner had started, uh, we decided, okay, well, let's try to build software platform that we can sell into the direct mail industry and help them kind of catch up, you know, able to offer a, a more automated solution to their campaigns that they're running. because. What happens when 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 you go and do a direct mail campaign the traditional way, you go to a print service provider, you go to an agency, there's a lot of manual steps that are involved. What we thought was, all right, well, there's a clear pain point here, and, and we had sold some already, and, and we thought, well, you know, there's a good market, it's being underserved, venture capital isn't really looking at it, you know, they're off chasing digital and email and things. Let's go do this, and we'll try to do it in a, a self-funded uh, way. We spent a year or so, built out this product, started selling it, hired some folks. You know, after a couple of years, it became very clear that we had built some really nice software. We had some patents, but the sales cycle was taking longer than what we had forecast. The mix of revenues was far more tilted towards services than we had really forecast and and, and really what we wanted. I mean, we didn't want to build software tool that required a lot of professional services to help get configured and set up. And it was frustrating because we thought the software was actually really easy to use. And then we, what we, we realized is that the market itself, the, the folks that the incumbent folks in the direct mail industry, there's a reason why they hadn't really invested much in technology. They weren't all that interested in change and they weren't all that interested in using technology to solve problems. Had to make a, a tough decision to pivot from there. And so what we ended up doing, we had to lay off some great people. Yeah, product market fit. Again, we had to lay off some great people. Uh, We took the underlying tech uh, that was underneath Boynet and we came out in a different direction. But what we started hearing from some clients was, you know, that direct mail was just too hard to do. There's too, too many manual steps. It's not integrated. There's no analytics. And we were providing that, but we, we we built a product for the service providers rather than the end users, like the, the companies themselves. So Postalytics took a lot of the concepts that were in Boynet, repackaged up and, and were in, in designed for marketers directly. So that if you're a marketer, you can sign up, build a campaign by drag and drop in software, press send, and it goes just like you can with an email campaign. That realignment of kind of the underlying components we have built, packaged up, 
marketed properly to a, a, a segment that is investing in tech and is trying to first think of technology as a way to solve problems. That happened, we, we rolled out in late 2017, early 2018, and the company has been growing you know, rapidly ever since. Just to paint the picture for people, when you said that the clients came to you and they were like saying that there was too many steps, just walk us through what it took to get direct mail off the ground as a maybe e-commerce company. The direct mail automation industry is still nascent and, and a fraction of the of the overall picture here. So the majority of direct mail is still done this way, where right, right. Uh, you will have a graphic designer who will work in a tool like an Adobe Illustrator or InDesign to build out some creative, we'll say it's a postcard. You'll hire a printer. Uh, you'll So you send out bids about your bespoke campaign that you are planning. Send out bids. You'll pick a print partner. They will introduce a mailhouse, which will be an organization designed to help optimize the postage, save or lose a tremendous amount of money in postage. Uh, when you send mail, then you need to find data, right? So who are you going to mail to? And so you end up typically exporting data out of your CRM, names and addresses and, and other information into spreadsheets. You know, you're driving creative with a graphic designer. You've got people that are doing the data work, the data sitting in a spreadsheet. All of that ends up being sent to the print partner where they then have a person go to a printer and do a little mini run of, let's say, five or 10 pieces of mail so that they can do the merge, right? So that they can- the Alignment. Yeah, and, 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 and because you can do personalization, right? So you can merge data like you do with email, except they have to do that and then actually print the pieces out, ship them through FedEx back to the marketing team and then mm-hmm. the marketing team says, well, you know what? We're going to change this. We're going to change that. Oh, that's and then the ridiculous. whole process starts all over again. That that bit is, is especially, that's terrible. It's crazy, right? That that should be a photo. So, that should be like a scan at that point. And then you can just Zoom call, adjust cool. right there. Yeah. The problem is that you have to then go back to that graphic design file mm-hmm. that is not integrated with anything. Yeah. You have to make changes. You have to go make changes in the data file, right? Because it's not integrated with anything. It's sitting in Excel. Nothing is connected. And it's this massive project management job. What we did was we said, all right, let's recreate email marketing and abstract away the complexity. We've essentially built software that enables that entire process to happen without any extra files. You can design your postcard online. The postcard is being stored in HTML. Then you can pull data in from Salesforce or HubSpot or whatever the case may be. And you can do the testing online. You can create PDFs and ship the PDFs off to all of the people that are needed for approval. And, and then, you know, then you can send the campaign. All of our software optimizes the postage, routes mail to print partners around the country who are then responsible for the, the printing and the mailing of the software. And then we capture data about what is happening to the mail from the print partners and the postal service, believe it or not, has data. And then we're able to sync all that back to dashboards. So you have a real-time understanding of what's happening to the campaign and then sync it back into your CRM so that Salesforce knows when the piece of mail is being delivered to Connor so that 
you it can then trigger another marketing event, right? It can yeah, trigger yeah. an email to go out or a text message. And, and then if there's a if if it's a bad address that's captured and and the data is connected and mm-hmm. and it's alive and it can actually do things. Yeah, yeah, it saves you a lot of time. Yeah. That's the idea of post essentially stitching together a set of technologies to just eliminate all that friction from the manual process of direct mail. I just want to uh, ask a question about personalization. So it seems to me when when I open an email, and I'm closer to this problem than probably you know the average person. So I, I understand that I have a bias when I look at this, but it, you know the things where it says, "Hey, Connor." We we miss you. We want you to come back to the shop. Here's a discount code. I I, I because I you know work in e-commerce. I just see straight through that, and I'm like, you didn't write that for me. I gave you my name. I actually wrote that for myself. I wonder what you think. Having seen all of these changes, you know, what do you think about personalization in the future? You know, I think that more and more people are savvy as to, you know, basic personalization, like, hey, Connor, everybody gets that. But now if you don't do that, it's almost like, mm, what? I mean, yeah, definitely. what kind of company is this? Right? <laughs> like, they can't even give me use my name. They're using high friend or, you know, current resident or, you know, whatever. But what, what I think is more and more happening uh, with personalization is that uh, there are concepts around a segmentation and then b dynamic content one of the innovations that we've helped to bring to direct mail is this concept of triggered mail it's very very common in email right and that's what marketing automation did hubspot or part out one of these uh, marketing automation tools and particular event happens it triggers a, a single email to go out you can do a lot of segmentation so that that email that is going out is you know specific to the for, from a timing perspective it is specific based on behavior right so you haven't been online you haven't bet you haven't bought anything from us in six months well you know um i need to reach out instead of some blast of ten thousand messages going out it's one and it is geared toward a specific behavior so so that segmentation really important and what part of what we've done We've enabled that to happen with print so that HubSpot can say, hey, Connor hasn't bought anything in six months. And in fact, he's not opened five of our last emails in a row. Let's try another channel. So trigger a piece of mail to go out to get to try to get some re-engagement, right? Even though it's a more expensive per piece per message. But clearly, something's going wrong. Connor's not responding to my e- our emails. He's not bought anything. We need to shake this up. Send the secret police. Kick down the door. Exactly. Yes. So, so that that concept of sending a triggered piece of mail is very new. Um, mm. It's been around in email for a while, but a physical piece is 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 kind of the innovation there. And part of it is because of the economics of printing. As I mentioned, you got to have a person go and set up a printing press for a run. Yeah. Well, you can't really do that for one piece of mail. So the economics are, are work against small numbers in printing. What we do is actually in the back end, we bundle all of the campaigns from different clients together so that it's all ready to go. We're creating high-resolution PDFs in a queue from campaigns from hundreds of clients every day. And so, so there's one print run of 
let's say six by nine postcards and it, and it might be 15,000 pieces. And that includes several hundred one at a time. We're aggregating volume to solve the printing problem and abstracting it from the customer. They don't have to worry about it. So that, so the segmentation is important. Then dynamic content, you can use data to then drive different messages to different audiences. And so if you know, Connor is a VIP customer, then the, then the data coming over from the underlying CRM or the marketing automation tool can then be used to say, all right, well, if the incoming content says VIP, then we're going to display this offer and this message and this image, as opposed to, you know, a different segment of the audience where the data says something else. So that more advanced type of personalization is becoming more prominent and again, it's been available in email. We are making that available in print. Everything we're doing is in HTML. We're taking data from all these systems and we can just, we can apply this logic to present, to create unique printed PDFs that we ship off to printers. The scenario you just displayed, can you set up that logic to operate like autonomously? Like if you would, if you, yeah. So you set up a few variables and you go like, we have a VIP customer and then, yeah. Exactly. Very cool. So the, the templates... The, the creative templates themselves contain the logic and it's all in HTML. Yeah, right, right. Then the data coming in uh, will trigger a particular uh, response to be filled out that ends, ends up getting printed into it or put into a PDF. Beautiful. So how do the analytics side of thing work? Yeah, great question. So if you are a digital marketer or an email marketer, you're accustomed to gaining a lot of insights around the performance of your campaign. And so, you know, direct mail is typically analyzed a process that requires a tremendous amount of manual work. So most organizations don't bother. Big companies do it and they have analysts that will comb through different reports and do matchbacks across different data sets in order to come up with some analytics. What we've done is we've, we've taken advantage of a service that the U.S. Postal Service has called the Intelligent Mail Barcode. Postal Service developed this product for their own internal tracking. Mail is coming in and it's being done by a commercial print organization as opposed to, you know, handwritten something with a stamp. But if it's being done at a commercial level, they're incentivizing everybody to use this automation tool that prints a unique barcode on each piece of mail. And so that way, you know, when a pallet of 50,000 postcards gets dropped off, you know, they have a way to track where everything is. And so they developed that internally. Then they said, hey, public, have at it. You know, you can apply for a, a, a permit from us and, you know, you can get the barcodes, you can get the data and do whatever you want with it. We've created a system where when a contact comes into Postalytics and a piece of mail is generated, a barcode is attached to the contact. And so if you're getting a piece of mail through one of our campaigns, then, you know, Connor's piece of mail from this particular campaign, it will have a unique barcode. As it gets scanned by the Postal Service, we've already done that association. What we have to do then, there are something like 2,000 different scan events that they can come up with, obviously an overwhelming amount of information. So we filter out a lot of the information that is not useful for marketers, and then provide the event data as steps 
of the timeline, right? So, you know, it, when the when the mail is being addressed, that's supply chain, yeah, exactly. And as it moves through the distribution process, those steps are being recorded and captured in the dashboard and synced back into our CRM and marketing automation tool partners uh, through customized fields that we generate. So then it's actionable and useful both visually uh, to, to the marketer as well as to the broader understanding of what's going on with messaging for this particular client in the CRM. And, and so, so that's a big part of it. And then the other thing we've done, uh, and this is part of what we took forward from the original Boynet product, we have a patented method of generating unique URLs and unique QR codes for each uh, recipient of a mail campaign. And so if you get a, a postcard and it's got a QR code on it, you scan it, what ends up happening is we're, we are capturing the fact that it is Connor from this particular piece of mail, uh, from this particular campaign, and, and then sending you off to the landing page uh, that you are supposed to go to. And, and then we're able to track that in an analytics dashboard and then track your usage once you have responded what el- what else have you done have you hit a conversion goal and just and- before you expand on that can you just flesh that out for me i get a postcard i see a qr code on the postcard and then that takes me to the client's website that's right oh, right okay. you you can and this is all configurable in the campaign settings right so here's where we're going to send people and, and there's a and, and you have to load. We have a, a special tracking code that you have to have. Yeah, yeah. Particularly with the pandemic, QR code usage has exploded. It's an easy way to onboard people from a, a physical item to a digital experience, and and so you know it just makes a ton of sense. And what's unique is that you know we're tracking the fact that it's Connor and Dennis and Jennifer responding to their individual mail pieces from specific campaigns. That is in place from an analytics standpoint. And we actually were working on some other mechanisms for response, like text messaging or and, and other things, utilize the same underlying framework of tracking. Is there anything that you wanted to touch on? I have a couple of bonus questions, but if there's anything that you wanted to speak about, we can do that. Well, you know, I guess first I'll just say that this has been really enjoyable, uh, you know, talking about these things. And, you know, I think, you know, you've given me some great things to take a look at. I particularly enjoy speaking to folks that have a kind of conceptual understanding of a lot of things that, that we're trying to do. And and so I've told the story, you know, the, the software um, is, is going great. So I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, you know, to have this ability to speak to you. Yeah. Thanks, Dennis. I would really love to do another episode maybe in a month or two months and we can you know, go deeper on these things because your origin story is so interesting that I just kept digging into it. I was like, don't, don't stop. But I would love to just see where else we can, we can talk. So I'll just say, um, where would you like me to point people to? Postalytics.com. Postal, P-O-S-T-A-L, Lytics, Y-T-I-C-S.com. There's a, it's, it's a freemium offering. So we're taking a product-led growth model. Part of how we're differentiating uh, is is really through our business model. That's a whole other area I love to talk about is product-led growth and then other part of our model, which is usage-based pricing. Uh, you can sign up for free. 
use the software, try it out, send yourself sample campaign very simply, very easily. You know, uh, if you find value, you can engage with us and uh, we can help from a strategy perspective and you know, with integrations and other more complex concepts. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Debutify Podcast. If you want to be part of the show, just email us podcast at debutify.com or head over to debutify.com to learn more. Have a great day and good luck with everything.